Matthew chapter 16. It's where we find ourselves again this Lord's Day morning. Matthew chapter 16. We begin uh, at verse 24 down through verse 27 for this morning's exposition of the scripture. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For in this, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Losing your life to find it is the subject uh, I've chosen for these verses that we'll attempt to explain uh, here momentarily. In the passage before us is Christ's call to discipleship. His call to follow him entails self-denial, cross-bearing, and submissive obedience to him. His gospel stands in stark contrast to the pervasive false gospels propagated in our land today. They are the gospels of physical health, wealth, success, self-esteem, and an easy life. In fact, there are no gospels at all. They appeal to the multitudes however, because they appeal to the flesh. Who doesn't want physical health, perfect physical health? Who doesn't want wealth? Who doesn't want success? Who doesn't want self-esteem? All those things appeal to the sinful desires of fallen human beings. So multitudes follow that kind of teaching. God doesn't promise it, but the purveyors of those false gospels say he does. Jesus' gospel does not have that appeal. It doesn't appeal to the flesh. In fact, what Jesus enunciates in the verses I just read in verse, uh, verse 24 is repelled by the flesh. His teaching is God's way. The false gospels are the world's way. You may recall from last week in verses 21 through or 23, Jesus taught that God's way, God's interest, includes suffering, cross, and potentially death. Remember, Peter didn't want Jesus to go to Jerusalem to suffer, to be killed. He rebuked Jesus, in fact, and he told, may it never be, may it ever happen to you. Jesus retorted by calling him Satan because he had in his thinking what Satan wanted he had also in his thinking what man desires rather than God's redemptive purpose and plan in our text Jesus indicates that what was true for him suffering possibly death is true for all who would be his disciples there's a cost to following Christ. The cost of discipleship. 
Jesus not only addressed here in verse 24 his disciples, as you see the first clause in the verse, but according to Mark chapter 8, verse 34, he summoned the crowd to hear his words. To the crowd, it was an invitation to salvation. The call to discipleship is the call to salvation. So when Jesus looked at the crowds, the curious followers, the onlookers, those who had some kind of interest in him for a multitude of reasons, he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me. That was his way of evangelizing them. To the twelve, it was a reiteration, a reminder to them, and by extension to all of us who are believers of our responsibility to daily obey Christ. We daily deny ourselves. We daily take up our cross, and we daily face the potential of death for Christ. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, informs of, of this. Genuine Christians need the reminder because the triad of the world, the flesh, and the devil oppose us in our commitment to being faithful to Jesus Christ. That evil triad does not want us to reflect the glory of Christ, live for the honor of Christ and the honor of God. So those evil facets of this world seek to undermine us. We need to remember who we're following and, and who we're serving. You notice the scope of the call to discipleship. It's universal. Verse 24, if anyone, if excluded from the call to follow Jesus, it's an open invitation. And he addresses all in that crowd. He addresses all in this Auditorium. Anyone who is here and you want to follow Jesus, he said, come. Come. Anyone who comes after me, I will in no wise cast out. Come after me, he says. Come. What does that mean? Come. Faith. Place your faith in me. Come. But, Jesus doesn't offer an easy believism. He doesn't say, come and just acknowledge some facts about me. No, 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 he doesn't do that. He delineates the demands for anyone who would want to come to him. That's the profound difference between the gospel that Jesus preached and the gospel that so many false teachers preach today in our land. They're telling you, come and you can get a Cadillac. <laughs> come and sow seed in my ministry and you'll reap a financial harvest. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus wasn't talking about earthly prosperity. Jesus says, look what he says. If any man or anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. By the way, let me add this. Uh, Jesus' call to salvation, his call to discipleship, he says, you must come on my terms. You, you can't come on your terms. If you want to follow Jesus on your terms, Jesus said, no, you can't come after me. And that makes sense because after all, we have to remember 
who's doing the speaking here. You remember earlier in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus asked him, who do men say that I am? And then he says, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter in Matthew 16, 16 says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The father showed him that Jesus is true. Identity. He is the Christ. He is Messiah. He is the son of the living God. That is, he is God incarnate. He and the father share the same essence, the same nature. Jesus is God. So guess who's saying, come after me? God in human flesh. And he, as such, lays out demands for following him. Somebody said, oh, you, 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 you can't teach this stuff. Because pe people um, don't like the idea of denying themselves and taking up a cross and following Jesus. Jesus said it. Those are his demands. Jesus said something else. People wonder, how, how are you going to build a church like that? Well, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not building a church. I can't build a church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And Jesus builds his church by calling people to himself who will deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. He knows how to build his church. So we need to understand this. Now, we need to understand something else here in this. These demands do not constitute works salvation. Jesus is not saying you have to earn your salvation by doing these things. You can earn your salvation when you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. You get it. You get salvation. Then He doesn't say that at all. We are saved by grace through faith. Here's the kick. You say, well, how does that work out with this text? I'm glad you asked. No one can meet these divine demands apart from divine grace much less have a desire to do so. Without grace, you're not thinking about denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. With the call to discipleship comes the grace of regeneration. Regeneration is the impartation of spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead in transgressions and sins. Those people who are regenerated are made alive. That's what happens. When Jesus summons to salvation, at the same time of the summons, he is making them alive so that they can respond to his invitation. Regeneration, another way to express this, is the new birth. And this is what happens when the newly made alive person, at that point, he exercises faith. He is given the faith to respond to Christ's summons to discipleship. That's why you did it. He made you alive, gave you the faith, and you said, I will follow Jesus. With this divine work accomplished in the soul, then one can comply with the divine command. You can deny yourself. In fact, you're glad to do it. Because you have a new heart. A new disposition. 
because you've been transformed on the inside and now that you've been transformed by the work of the spirit in giving you a new heart giving you new life setting you apart unto God guess what now you say oh yes 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 I want to follow Jesus Deny himself. Let's understand what this means. Deny means to completely disown. Completely disown. The word used here is the same Greek term employed by Peter when he denied Christ. Peter disowned Christ. Temporarily. But he did, and that's what we henceforth and forevermore. Not deny Christ, deny ourselves. We deny ourselves or himself as the text says here. What are we meaning? What is Jesus meaning? Sinful self. The natural, sinful, rebellious, unredeemed self. We disown that. We deny that. We say, I'm done with that. All that we were before salvation, what we were in Adam, we're done with it. We're finished. Another way to put that is repentance. The call to discipleship requires repentance from sin and selfish ambition. This is not a one-off here, this verse, by the way. Jesus repeatedly talked about repentance for anyone who would be his followers. Luke chapter 5, verse 32. Luke 14, verse 26. Luke 24, verse 47. In the Acts, they talk about repentance unto faith, repentance from sin and faith unto God. Repentance is critical. In the Old Testament, even Acts, uh, Isaiah chapter 55, let the wicked forsake his what? Way. The call to salvation. Old and New Testament, same thing. Turn away from sin. That's what Jesus is saying. You can be a follower of Christ. You can't follow him and keep your sin. Some people want to add Jesus to their life, but keep their sinful life Jesus said no way you're fooling yourself he is not Jesus is not going to be an addendum to your life he's going to be the Lord of your life New Testament uh, elaborates this Colossians chapter 3 verse 9 says about saints you have laid aside the old self the unregenerate self. What we were before we were regenerated by the grace of God through the work of the Spirit, using the gospel, applying it to our hearts, and we believe, and we move from darkness to light. We move from Satan's kingdom to the kingdom of God's dear Son, our old self. We're not that any longer. We've been transformed. Romans 6, 6 says this, the old self was crucified with him, speaking of Christ, in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. 
Our old self, our unregenerate self, all of that died with Christ. The body of sin in that verse, Romans 6, 6, is synonymous with our old self. Done away with, rendered powerless, ineffective. That's why we're no longer slaves to sin because sin which dominated us before Christ no longer has the power to tyrannize us, dominate us, control us because it has been rendered ineffective. We can live for Christ now because we've been made alive, because we've been transformed. We have a new heart. We can obey him. Prior to that, we couldn't do it. Yes, you're right, brother. We didn't want to do it. We loved ourselves and loved our sin. But when he changed us, everything changed. Behold, we became new creatures in Christ, did we not? If a person says, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, and their life is one of rebellion and sin and continues no different from the way it was, they're not a follower of Jesus. They're deluded. We've been transformed. Jesus said, deny yourself. Next thing he says here, take up his cross. (laughs) These words have been misunderstood by Christians and other people too. You know, you got to understand the cross here is not talking about that little piece of jewelry around your neck. See, it's a sentimental thing now. People wear a cross. I see all kinds of people wearing crosses. I'm thinking, uh, do you really understand what the cross really means? Christians do. But I, I see people just like it's golden, it's nice, and they stick it on their, their wherever. Their nose, tongue, where? <laughs> other, other people think, well, my, my cross is my cranky spouse. No. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. The cross does not refer to the common trials and hardships all people endure. The context is essential to understanding what our Lord is saying here when he says take up his cross. When the disciples heard this, When they heard these words from Jesus, no doubt they were jarring because they immediately thought about what they had seen in their lived experience in Israel. Roman executions on crosses against enemies of the state of Rome and lawbreakers against Rome. And it has been estimated that in Jesus' lifetime, 30,000 Jews were crucified. It was a common thing. They had it on the way, on the highway, so when people walked by, they could see men on crosses. And knowing, uh-oh, you violated Roman law. The cross was an instrument of shame, torture, and death. That's what the cross was. So when they heard cross, they, they understood Jesus is not talking about a pic- Sunday picnic. Following him meant the potential being put to death. The cross is the ultimate expression of commitment to Jesus Christ and his gospel. Let me tell you something. Some people, some believers will never face the prospect of physical death for Christ and his gospel. But they must be willing. 
I'm going to tell you, you're living for Christ, really following him, doing what he wants. Uh, there is a price that can be paid even short of death, but just oh, oh, it's really hard. I heard the other day um, down in Nicaragua, Managua, there are some Christians who are imprisoned unjustly. They were preaching the gospel, and the government came against them. They have no business in the jail there. They're even trying to get the U.S. government to do something. You know, that's a political issue to do that. And so there they are. They didn't harm anyone, just preaching the gospel. And massive number of people were coming to hear the gospel through these Christians. It's a cost. Following Christ. I'm going to tell you something. You don't want to be ashamed of him. Some people are ashamed. Mark talks about this in the parallel account. Some people are ashamed to speak of Christ because they're ashamed of what people might think of them. Think less of them. Jesus said, you've got to take up your cross. Next thing he says here, follow me. Follow me. Discipleship requires a loyal and continual obedience to Christ. The verb follow here in this text, a form of the Greek word akalutheo. Akalutheo is the same verb found in John chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they, akalutheo, follow me. What does he mean? They heed the call to salvation and continue in faith and obedience. That defines Jesus' sheep. You can know that you're Jesus' sheep, that you belong to him when you've come to him by faith. You uh, said yes to his demands and you continue to obey him. Obedience to Christ is the response we are to have to him. First Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Remember the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Who he set us apart to obedience or to obey Jesus Christ. One way we know we're uh, obe uh, his, that we know him savingly. First John chapter 2, verse 4, is that we obey his commandments. Okay, I need to say something. Some, but but, but uh, <laughs> I fail. I know. I've never seen anybody in my relatively short life compared to Methuselah <laughs> who hasn't failed to obey Christ at some point. Excuse me, points. None of us can keep divine law perfectly. We're fallen. Now I'm confessing your sins. <laughs> As R.C. Sproul would say. <laughs> uh, 
Christians do not perfectly obey the word of God. If they did, 1 John 1, 9 wouldn't be in the Bible. Well, how do we determine? I'm going to tell you what happens when you've come to faith in Christ and you're growing and the word of God is continually tra- changing you by renewing your mind, Romans 12, 2. You find there is a pattern in your life. There's a, a direction in your life. Your direction is obedience. The pattern is obedience broken by instances of sin. Whereas before your regeneration, you had a pattern of sin. That's all you knew. There was no righteousness. You were a slave to sin. You did what was wrong in God's sight day in and day out. Not only your actions, but your thinking. And you loved darkness rather than light. All that changed. And now you have the desire, I want to please God. I want to obey Christ. I want to yield to his will, and when we fail, we hate that, and we confess that, repent of that, and ask God for his strength to be more faithful to him. That's what Christ's sheep do. Christ's sheep also, they stay in his word. That's what Jesus said. True discipleship is revealed by one's continuous continuance in Jesus' word, John chapter 8, verse 31. It's not enough to just say, say, I believe in Jesus. You got to go beyond that. To know if you're genuinely his, there will be continuance in his word. I didn't write it, Jesus did. Or John recorded it, Jesus said it. That's the cost of discipleship. So we have to understand what it means to be a Christian. The personal responses to discipleship, Jesus has just enunciated this and so he says, now I want to tell you all something. The cost of discipleship that I've just outlined, self-denial, potential cross, following me, I'm the leader, I'm the Lord. Some people say, no, I don't want to do that. Uh, You mean I got to deny myself? I want to do me. I want to call the shots in my life. I don't want to follow anybody. I want to do my thing. I want acceptance by my peers, by the world. Jesus says, pay attention. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. This is a paradox. A paradoxical statement to explain a profound point to us. To save one's life is to do exactly what I was just saying a moment ago. No self-denial. No taking up the cross. No following Jesus. No thanks. I'm going to live my life as the songwriter said, I'm going to do it my way. I did it my way. She'll lose it. The loss here refers to the second death. It refers to the lake of fire. 
Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Write it down and look at it later on. That's the outcome of all those who say no to Jesus, no to his salvation. The ultimate end is the lake of fire. Here's the other paradox in this. Verse 25, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Those who are willing to abandon everything for Christ will find their life. Rather than the second death or a eternal death, they receive eternal life. Eternal life in all its glory. And may I say to you, there's nothing more valuable than Christ, his kingdom, and his gospel. You say, why do you say that? Because Jesus tells us so. In the parable, you may recall, as we've been working our way through Matthew, Matthew chapter 13, verses 44, Jesus gives two parables that demonstrate the supreme value of the gospel, of the kingdom, discipleship. Matthew 13, verse 44, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. By his action he demonstrated what I've found is of supreme value, and I'll do whatever is necessary to get it. Sell everything. That's what salvation is worth, everything. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. He recognized value. He recognized a good investment. There's another text. This one is by the Apostle Paul. Philippians 3. And he says in verse 8, verse 7, let me start there. But whatever things were gained to me, talking about his religious life, his life before Christ, when he was lost, but religious, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Rubbish. Rubbish. Uh, dung. The word means. It's what goes in the sewer system. Everything, everything that he had before that, when he found Christ, he realized all that stuff was dung. Supreme value, surpassing value of knowing Christ. He's worth giving up everything, even your life. Right? He's worth. He's worth denying yourself. Taking up your cross and following him. 
verse 26 of our text. The preposition for is used there. It confirms further what Jesus just said in verse 25. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? This is a rhetorical question, of course. And the second was a rhetorical question as well. And he poses them in economic terms to show the supreme value of eternal life. For what it, will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, if it were possible? What benefit? What benefit is there for one who, if it were possible to gain the whole world and forfeits or suffer the loss of his soul? And let me tell you, if you could gain the whole world, a saint back there. <laughs> you need to understand something. The world's a temporary place. 1 John 2, 17, the world is passing away. That is the world system and everything in it, it is passing away even as I speak. It's wealth. It's technology. Yes, that expensive iPhone, the new one, it's going to be gone one day. You care how many upgrades they make to it to get more thousands out of your pocket. One day it's going to be gone, and people live for that stuff. Not only that, the world's lust, its evil pleasures, all of that is passing away. According to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, in part, read this way, the earth and its works will be burned up. Revelation 21.1 says this, the first earth, the one we're presently occupying, passed away. Be gone. So what a person will do, they will pursue, they have all of this stuff. If they can get the whole world, one day they're going to lose it too and they've already lost their soul. What can you give in exchange for your soul? what the text says. Jesus asked this second rhetorical question. The loss of the soul is irrevocable. Once you lose it, you can't get it back. D. Edmund Heber said the incomputable value of the human soul. Incomputable. There are no computers. There is no computer now nor ever they'll have the computer capacity to assign a value to the soul. Let's consider for a moment a fool. If you will, just look there with me, as I said for a moment, Luke chapter 12, verse 16. You're familiar with this parable. Jesus is uh, teaching about being aware of covetousness. Every form of greed beyond 
your guard. He says in Luke 12, 15, for not even when one has abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Then he launches into a parable. He talks about a rich man who was, lamb was very productive, verse 16, began reasoning to himself, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? He said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many good goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He said, I'm set for life. I've got it going on. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So it is, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let me say just a couple of things about it. A fool refers to someone who is mindless, lacking sense, who has forgotten God. This man thought he was set for life. <laughs> God took his life. One final thing about this. There is no bigger fool than the one who is not prepared for the life to come. None. Back in our text, we come to verse 27. We've seen the cost of discipleship, the personal responses to discipleship, uh, the coming of Christ to reward discipleship and punish those who rejected it, are rejected. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. The return of Jesus Christ to the earth will be a time of judgment for sinners and reward for saints, genuine disciples. Jesus refers to himself by his favorite title in the Gospels, the Son of Man. That title, Son of Man, comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Jesus applies it to himself. The Son of Man is a supernatural figure who functions alongside the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is a title for God the Father. It speaks of his eternality, and God is seated, and he is about to judge. According to Daniel's vision, Four kingdoms in world history have risen and God judges them. And the kingdom of God, however, is the ultimate kingdom, the one that will last forever, the one over which Christ will rule. And when he comes, he is going to set up his kingdom. It's coming in great power and great glory. And he will repay everyone according to his deeds. That's what he says here. Those whose deeds have been the pursuit of sin and selfishness and ungodliness and rebellion against him, disrespecting and disavowing God and his will, Jesus is going to come and repay people who've done that. But he also reward those who've denied themselves, taken up their cross, and followed him. what he's going to do. Matthew chapter 25 
It's a very, very familiar parable. Everybody's heard of judgment of sheep and the goats, right? Jesus talks about his second coming. I'm going to tell you all something. He is going to come. And all nations are going to be gathered before him. And he will separate them, the, the nations, ethnic people. Sheep and goats. He will put, verse 33, uh, Matthew chapter 25, he will put the sheep on his right and goats on, his, on the left. Then the king, that's Jesus, will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And they say, oh, wow. And Jesus goes and say, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat and so on. He goes on right down through the list. Verse 37, the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and so on? And you say, when did all this happen? The king will answer, verse 40, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. During the tribulation period, Jews. But the others, verse 41, on his left, depart from me into eternal fire, which has been prepared. They didn't do what the sheep did, demonstrating their lostness, their hatred of God and God's people. And they will go away, verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That's what Jesus is going to do when he comes. Does discipleship matter? You better believe it. The missionary Jim Elliott, um, Christians, longtime Christians know this very famous quote of him. He was, uh, he was murdered. He was going down to uh, Ecuador, the Aka Indians there. Jim Elliott said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to keep what he cannot lose. You give up your life for serving Christ, ultimately you don't lose. You win. But you keep your life, do your thing, I'm going to enjoy life, I'm going to grab all the gusto. You're going to lose, ultimately. You'll be a loser. Either you win for eternity or lose for eternity. It depends on what you do with Christ and his call to discipleship. See, if you lose your life by following him, you find it ultimately. Praise his name. Let us bow together in prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word, his grace, his truth. Uh, how it contradicts the folly that's propounded from pulpits and false churches that want to make it easy for sinners to have a little religion and sin deceiving them as they are going merrily on their way to hell having little Jesus so they think but having none of him for he has none of them I pray for us who belong to you that we will stand steadfast in the truth what salvation involves it means to serve Christ I pray for any in this room this morning it's under the conviction ministry of the Holy Spirit 
They see their need for the Savior who alone can forgive their sin. The Savior who uh, came from heaven and went to the cross and bore the sin of all who would ever believe. He's raised by you on the third day. He's alive and willing to forgive all who would come. We ask you to move in their hearts to deny themselves, take up their cross, and become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray you do this for your own glory and for their souls for all eternity. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.